Hey everyone, so we're in the middle of a holiday season here, so I'm taking a little time off, but I thought that would be a good excuse to republish my 2018 conversation with Dr. Pablo Janguas. He is a researcher at the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute, and when we spoke in 2018, he had recently published a book that was causing quite a stir in global development circles. The book is titled, Why We Lie About Aid. The book was one of the more interesting discussions of the politics of global development. And what I I loved about this episode at the time is that, you know, you don't need to be a global development nerd to really appreciate and have his arguments really resonate with you. And shortly after I published this episode, I just got a lot of feedback from listeners saying how much they appreciated this episode. So that's why I thought, why not uh, republish it now? And before we get to that episode, I just want to say a big thank you to Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. Thank you to the good folks at Northwestern for enabling this show to keep on, keep it on. All right, so here is my 2018 show featuring Dr. Pablo Janguas. My guest today, Pablo Janguas, is a research fellow at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. He is the author of the new book, Why We Lie About Aid, Development and the Messy Politics of Change. And in this conversation, we discuss the central thesis of his book, which is that there is a profound gap between the politics of development on the one hand and how economic development is actually achieved on the ground in the developing world on the other. And the book is provocative for arguing that the former causes us to misrepresent the latter. And I must say, this thesis rings true to my experience covering global development as a journalist for over a decade now, and this conversation is clarifying for me. He identifies and ascribes political motives to trends that I have certainly seen covering these issues. And even if you're not a global development nerd, I think you'll find this conversation very useful. And now here is my conversation with Pablo Jenguas of the University of Manchester. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The idea for this book came from what I saw in people around me. I don't mean my colleagues or other professionals working on development, but my friends, family, Educated people who basically had very limited knowledge of how development actually unfolded. And while I was studying political science uh, for my PhD, I was fully invested in understanding the politics of development, 
Then I came to the UK uh, and I learned more about how the development community actually works in practice. And I kept seeing this distance between how things I believed unfolded in reality, how things were spoken about by the development and the aid community in particular, and how normal everyday people actually saw these issues. So, so give me an that, example. Like, like what, what, what is that gap? What does that gap look like in practice? So the gap looks like, um, imagine the protagonists, for instance. You know, regardless um, of who you hear in public debates about development, you're usually going to imagine either starving children or if you're a bit more um, skeptical, maybe corrupt dictators. Um, when in fact, a lot of the changes that, that are involved in development happen because of professionals, advocates, reformers, public servants, you know, people wearing reasonably good clothes with mobile phones, people with, with education who are pushing for years at a time, decades at a time for reforming their country. So it's not just about vaccinating sick children, but about building the health systems that will keep those children healthy throughout their lives. And it's that's not a, a sexy way to get donations, and it's not an easy way to attack a sector, but it is what it happens on the ground. Uh, and so you were inspired to kind of close that gap between public perception and reality on the ground? Exactly. So when I looked at how donors were publicizing their activities, I saw lots of numbers, lots of assertions of, you know, outputs, basically. This is uh, the number of women that we train to be empowered, which, of course, raises the question, what does that mean in practice? A lot of these numbers that some of my informants, some of the professionals on the ground call very spurious numbers. Um, but moreover, the reports that I kept encountering completely eliminated from the picture the people that I had met when doing research on the ground, the local activists and reformers who were the true protagonists of development. And they were simply nowhere to be found in our narratives of development assistance. So, so tell me about, say, one of these true protagonists. What, who are they? What do they look like? What do they do? So, for instance, one of my uh, pet cases is one that I studied for my PhD. It, it was the Anti-Corruption Commission in Sierra Leone. Uh, Sierra Leone in the late 1990s, emerging out of a very difficult decade of conflict and, and corruption and state capture. And one of the preconditions for the international community to support the, the local government's efforts to rebuild was to have a stronger control over how public money was used, you know, and by extension, donor money. So the government launched like an official war on corruption and they decided to look at other countries like Hong Kong, Singapore, Botswana, Tanzania, and they set up an anti-corruption commission. And after a, a lot of jockeying for position and horse trading, they eventually appointed a, a man who was a, like a career public servant. Um, he had been the cabinet secretary, secretary of the establishment, was considered to be a safe choice, right? This man, Valentine Collier, then did something that nobody had predicted. He actually started taking his job seriously. And he actually decided to recruit young people fresh out of college with no baggage. He created its own, a new system of ethics for the organization that he was building. And he started challenging sitting ministers, um, key people in the public administration, and in general making himself uh, a bit of a, a nuisance for the regime in power. Now, foreign aid helped establish this commission, right? And it helped keep it afloat. And at some point, it helped the anti-corruption commissioner 
deal with the president. Effectively, the, the UK became an intermediary between the anti-corruption commissioner and the Sierra Leonean president. So, so just, just he, in, in the sense that, you know, the this guy, uh, Collier, knew that, like, the big donor, the UK, would have his back if he push comes to shove when he's facing down some political powers in, in Sierra Leone. He did for a while, yes. But what's most important here is to recognize that he was taking all the risks by launching uh, this campaign or this series of activities on anti-corruption, he was basically isolating himself politically, but also facing personal repercussion and, and ostracism. And that is nothing that his supporters in London or in the British High Commission in Freetown would face themselves. And it is very important for us to realize that those are the true protagonists of development and that what they face is no different than the messiness of our own politics in donor countries. You know, there's this sort of technocratic illusion about what we want foreign aid to achieve. We want it to achieve fixes. We want it to fix things. But in fact, development is a lot about fights, just like it is in the United States or in the United Kingdom or in Spain. And, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, at least politically speaking, Sierra Leone is considered something of, of a success story. You know, it emerged from decades of conflict and has, you know, had a fairly stable democratic uh, government, f you know, for, for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years or so. From a development perspective, though, is it also a, a success story? I mean, the, the flip side of that question is you have something like Rwanda, which is undoubtedly a development success story, but politically, you know, it, you know, it has become more and more authoritarian. It depends on how you define development. So do you define development by basic human development indicators like literacy rates or vaccination rates or infant mortality rates? Um, or do you understand development as building the institutions that will underpin decades of stability and peaceful economic growth and, and human development? So Rwanda, in many ways, has a government that has aimed to wean itself out of foreign aid, and it has its own developmental vision. It's problematic, especially if you're concerned about things like human rights. But it is not a particularly interesting story to me because it's a, a very exceptional story. It is not representative of the norm of how politics of development unfolds in most countries. Um, I, I see what you're saying. So, so what is this anti-corruption guy uh, up to now? Has has he? Yeah. Okay, so the, you asked before about success. So, yes. success uh, and failure depend when you start and stop telling your story, right? So this person, this man, was actually not renewed as anti-corruption commissioner in the year 2005. He was seen to be too politically damaging by the, by the ruling regime, the ruling party, and the and parliament. So if you stop the story then, around 2005, 2006, you see, oh, the story of the anti-corruption anti commission in Sierra Leone is obviously a failure. So, you know, as donors, DFID, uh, the UK Department for International Development, you know, pull out. This is not a, a worthwhile investment. Now, if you actually continue paying attention to the story, what happened was that these, his, during his tenure, he managed to raise the profile of anti-corruption in the country and to make corruption and anti-corruption a salient political issue, such that the next election in 2007 was a sort of, the campaign was based on corruption and anti-corruption. And the fact that the government, the incumbent government, had so blatantly stopped anti-corruption activities 
gave a lot of space for the opposition to actually win with a, with a promise to reinvigorate the Anti-Corruption Commission, to appoint a young energetic human rights lawyer who reformed the law, who redid the commission, who started again investigating and prosecuting sitting public officials. So if you stop your story in 2005, this is a failure. If you continue reading until 2008 or 9 and 10, it becomes a success. But then, of course, this new chief of the Anti-Corruption Commission left, and then people, you know, in Sierra Leone disagree about success and failure. But this is another point that I want to make in the book, is that development is a contentious process, and it is episodic. And you have episodes of reform, and you have episodes of reaction against reform. And we have to be very careful when we start and stop our stories to understand whether we're making progress or not. Can you walk me through a, another example of an individual or an institution that is sort of making uh, a difference in, in, in a way that, um, say, this anti-corruption is maybe from another part of the world? Yeah. So actually, let me give you an example of people within the World Bank trying to make a difference. That was actually going to be my other question. Like, like d does this um, thesis apply on the donor side as well? It does. One of the things that I've done over the years is study the politics of donors themselves. Um, there's in the last two decades, there's been a lot of individuals and small groups here and there in most donor agencies and development agencies working to get uh, them to be more effective, whether it is by being more flexible and adaptive to context or by being more politically smart about the challenges that they face. And of course, these people run against whole bureaucratic inertias that have to do a lot with career advancement pumping money out of the door and so on and so forth. And the World Bank, tragically, is well known for this fixation with making sure the money flows from you know, the central pipes to the big, smaller pipes at the country level. Um, but there was this very energetic uh, public sector specialist in Ghana who took a completely different approach. Um, you know, at the time, this is 2012, uh, Ghana was beginning to uh, approach the time of... Uh, uh, natural resource maturity, so the exploration and exploitation of oil, oil resources. And this specialist said, okay, how do we ensure that these resources are used for the good of the, Ghana, the Ghanaian people? Can we trust Ghanaian politicians to make the right choices? And, you know, upon looking at the environment, what she decided was the best way forward was to craft a coalition encompassing public sector actors, private sector actors, civil society actors, who would informally, but then more formally, come together to discuss the challenges and to agree how to address those challenges as time unfolded. Um, and the seeds that were planted then can be seen now with a deputy minister of energy in charge of natural resources who used to be the head of a major civil society organization and who is facilitating conversations between civil society actors and public sector actors. Again, you can see that this is a complex story to tell. It doesn't fit nicely into a single evaluation report, especially when some of the secondary impacts are felt five years down the line. Um, this person in the World Bank then moved on to Nigeria and with the help of a very entrepreneurial, very smart country director, she set up an entirely new way of doing World Bank projects, one that was more reflexive, self-aware, self-critical, evidence-based, and politically informed. Um, and you do see in the uh, development business how these individuals, these key people, move from organization to organization, 
slowly but surely over time, gradually pushing their organizations to be more effective at development. Uh, and again, the, the idea would be if we're going to do this better, we need to empower those individuals and also from a donor perspective, like allow a little more risk taking. Exactly. Um, donors, uh, in terms of funders, but also providers, charities, NGOs, are very cautious these days. And, you know, the current scandals around the uh, Oxfam, Save the Children, basically reinforce this siege mentality um, in part of the development community because they don't have many allies in donor country politics. These communities are rather isolated and they're very easily attacked by critics who want to use it as a proxy for big government or for internationalism or just to score cheap rhetorical points with their audiences or with their voters. So what we face right now is a system on the defensive, uh, just trying to forestall these attacks, keep their budgets, keep the lights on. But what I worry about is that by being so defensive, we are effectively complicit in public misinformation and public ignorance. We use the narrative of the starving children as a counterpoint to the narrative of the corrupt dictator, because that's the best, easiest, quick way to gain support in the short term. But that is not actually what is happening. And it creates a false perspective in people's minds. It creates vague expectations about what success looks like. And whenever you hear a case of a project that is not going as intended, everybody jumps on the bandwagon of saying, it doesn't work, it's never work, look at this project. And I think something different has to be done by the community in that regard. And, uh, you know, another thing that I've noticed over the years reporting on on this issue is that, you know, from that defensive posture that you just identified that the aid community uh, often finds itself, there flows, it seems, like a, almost like a tyranny of measurable results, that you have to um, show exactly how many, how your inputs feed your outputs in ways that are like very linear, where in fact, a lot of the, the development progress that you see is, is nonlinear uh, and perhaps not like quantitatively measured. And that's something that's always sort of bothered me, frankly, about the whole enterprise, yeah. It is exactly, that's exactly right. But there are very good reasons why we are um, subjected to this sort of false or, or interpretation of what results uh, should be like. You know, 10 years ago, we had a major financial crisis. Austerity policies were imposed in many countries, in many donor countries, industrialized democracies. And while budgets have not really taken a major hit in the aggregate. So you can see that the relative level, the absolute levels of ODA, overseas development assistance, are either stable or growing. What happened was that there was an increased amount of scrutiny on the community and the rise of what a former USAID administrator, Andrew Natsios, called the counter-bureaucracy, a bureaucracy that exists solely for the purpose of keeping the aid bureaucracy in check. And with that come a lot of onerous requirements like bean counting, demonstrating value for money, uh, developing you know tangible, measurable indicators, however falsified they are, and effectively spending a large chunk of your time as an aid professional reporting back to the headquarters and basically looking over your shoulders constantly under the fear that your projects are going to be axed or that your office is going to be underfunded. And that 
so the mentality that sort of a bean counting approach to aid i don't think is intrinsic or it didn't come from the community but it's been adopted as a survival logic basically um so so what's at the heart of of the title of your book why is it that we lie about aid i think we lie about aid because it's very hard not to lie about aid and the we encompasses a wide array of actors. So let's start with professionals, like aid professionals, development professionals. As I just said, I think they have to lie about aid in order to survive, right? It's a defense mentality in the sector. I think it's problematic. I think this is a short-term sort of solution, but it's not a long-term solution, and it's self-defeating in the long run. That's my personal view. Um, then there's a segment of the conservative right that also misrepresents aid for its own purposes uh, because the aid budget doesn't have the kind of popular support or implications of you know public service provision or entitlements, uh, the basic welfare state. Like Very few people are going to go on the streets and demonstrate if you cut the aid budget. Yeah, there, there is right? not a constituency for exactly. for foreign aid. Although it's, I, I would push back against that a little bit in the, that there are innovative advocacy organizations like Global yes. Citizen, the One Campaign, others that are, are changing that in, in meaningful ways. And um, they're also, at least in the uh, George W. Bush administration, yes, used to be a exactly. groundswell of Christian conservatives who saw, you know, foreign aid as like a, a moral duty as well and, and, and sort of prioritized that. Although that in subsequent years, at least in the, the Trump administration, when it does not seem to have the same kind of cachet. I think you're absolutely right. But this has changed over time. Like it is a context, it's a context that changes over time. So how funny it is that now we miss the days of George W. Bush and compassionate conservatism precisely because of this ability to care for what's happening overseas, mm -hmm. which is not so much in vogue in the current leadership um, yeah. in some developed countries. Well, it's interesting. I, left, by the way. Yeah, no, I, I would say also, like, like to the extent that it exists at all, it exists around Mike Pence, the, the U.S. vice president, exactly. but his sort of he doesn't go for like the compassionate side of, of the compassionate conservative in, in terms of foreign aid issues. You've seen to the extent that he's engaged on foreign aid issues, it's been pretty much exclusively to sort of try to funnel funding dollars to Christian communities in threat and in danger in, in the Middle East. It hasn't really gone beyond, uh, beyond that. And, and it hasn't kind of had that encompassing George W. Bush, uh, worldview in which it's sort of seen as like a, a charitable duty by him as a Christian to like help everyone. It's very exclusionary, so far at least. Yeah, the ideological politics surrounding foreign aid in particular are very strange and, and in every country they, they're odd in, in a certain way. So in the US, for instance, uh, you know, the case of George W. Bush coming in supposedly or through his advisors against this sort of unwieldy, out of control internationalism of the Clinton years. And yet he expanded the international development budget way more than any of his predecessors created the Millennium Challenge Corporation um, and so on. Uh, in the UK, uh, the UK Department for International Development was created by a left of center government, by Tony Blair's Labour government. But then the commitment to um, uh, not 0.7% of gross income for foreign aid was actually adopted by a conservative government, mm -hmm. the government of David Cameron. 
Then David Cameron is out of the picture for, you know, strange, silly UK politics. And Theresa May, the new prime minister, also a conservative, she's not really that interested into it. And she's considering, you know, there's rumors that she's considering axing that commitment, repealing the law that enshrined um, the 0.7% um, as, a, as a commitment for every government going forward. Mm-hmm. But this is going back to the question of isolation. Do you know what happened then? Bill Gates had to come to London and basically give a speech, talk to people, write op-eds to say that the UK should not cut its commitment to 0.7% because that was you know, a source of pride, a source of influence in the world, a net good, positive good for the world. Bill Gates. So this is what I'm talking about. The context has shifted significantly when the community has to rely on a foreign philanthropist to actually come and save today. And this is a UK-specific problem, but I can also see it with my colleagues and, and friends in the U.S., with all, all the people who've um, either retired early or resigned from State Department and USAID. Um, the fact that uh, USAID is, has largely been ignored by the Trump administration. So I think we're, you're right that the community has not always been isolated, but we are living in a moment of isolation. And that is why lying sometimes is necessary. It's the only way to battle. So we need to appeal to people's most basic assumptions of what development is, which is something like vaccines and putting children in schools. And we need to sell them that idea as a way to protect ourselves from those who are selling, you know, the strident sort of criticism about beltway bandits and eight fat cats and aid being siphoned out to corrupt dictators. So, so, so ha- that, is why, that is why we lie. We lie because it is very hard not to at the moment and there is not a counterpoint. There's no countervailing power that can challenge the destructive narratives about development. Yeah, so, so there's basically no you know, political relevance or salience into kind of talking real uh, about aid, talking about how, you know, like, like is the thesis of your book, uh, aid depends on these kind of invisible um, actors, or I should say invisible to most people in, in, in the donor countries who are the ones making real change on the ground and, and, you know, who are not starving children, who are, you know, may have their own driver even, but are, are nonetheless like the ones making a difference. Yeah, I don't think there's a there's a political appetite for that. Though it is hard to tell at this moment, you know, last year in particular, in 2017, I think we all assumed that, you know, populism had won the day. Um, now we cannot be so sure anymore. Um, we're seeing pushback against uh, Brexit in the UK. Um, we're seeing a French president who is uh, more openly talking about an international agenda. We're seeing a resurgent European Union. Uh, we're seeing even countries like China saying that they're not going to be spoilers and they're going to protect, you know, global agreements like the climate change agreement, even if the United States steps out. So we don't know how, whether the tide is changing or not. But what is clear is that the old elite consensus on internationalism, liberal internationalism, no longer applies, or at least it's hidden in offices and in high-rise buildings that people don't have an ability to peek into. Um, And I think there's a lot of fear that the kind of anger directed at globalization that translated into so many, you know, democratic votes in the last couple of years would also eventually contaminate um, development, international development and foreign aid budgets. And I think that's a reasonable fear. But 
living in fear is not a strategy. And, you know, things have been different, as you've pointed out. There was a time when Bono paraded around the world and hung out with the Pope to try to argue for uh, debt forgiveness, you know, and that wasn't so, such a long time ago. So these movements have happened in the past, but we do not have one at the moment. And I think what we're seeing is um, a self-defeating strategy by our community. Uh, well, Pablo, thank you so much for your insights and, and for the book. This is, this is great. This is a very helpful conversation. No, thanks for having me. And I hope that uh, you know, the messages in the book at least raise some interesting questions for your listeners and that some of them might find them useful. All right. Thank you all for listening. And I'll post a link to the book on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you all for listening and for supporting the show. See you later. Bye.